Welcome to Nature Talk, brought to you by Natural Resource and Governance Programme of the School of Public Policy and Governance at Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Hyderabad. Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Hyderabad ke School of Public Policy and Governance ke Natural Resource and Governance Programme dwara aapke liye lai gaye Nature Talk mein aapka swagat hai. Hello and welcome to Nature Talk, the crossroads of nature, policy and innovation, where we unravel the complex tapestry of our environment through diverse and enlightening dialogues. I am your host, Srija Bandopadhyay, and in today's episode, we are venturing into the emerald waters of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Joining us is Professor Pankit Sekhsarya, a man of many talents, a researcher, author, photographer and a voice for conservation. His work, including captivating novels like The Last Wave and Island in Flux, sheds light on the intricate tapestry of life in the Andamans. Sir, we are thrilled to have you with us. Your journey with the Andaman and Nicobar Islands has been long and rich. Could you please start by sharing what initially drew you to these islands and what keeps you anchored there even now? Hi, thanks for having me over and for your kind words. So, um... I went there almost 30 years ago and I went there as I was just finishing my engineering in Pune at that point of time and I had some time on hand and I had a friend in the island so he said if you have some time why don't you just come over and I I went there as somebody as a young person just wanting to see the place and see what is there because everybody has heard about the islands and I was already interested in that point at that point already in issues of nature in issues of the environment so uh, it was, I was seeing myself going in that direction. I was also interested in communication at that point of time. So when I was finishing my graduation, which was incidentally in engineering, I was quite keen and I had some sense that I want to work in the field of the environment and communication. And of course, one was exploring. I mean, one hears about all these beautiful places and uh, these this wonderful nature. And the islands were like really... Uh, a great place to go to in the sense of getting an opportunity. So I went there, I spent two months on the first time I was there with this friend of mine uh, who has been an inspiration all along. And uh, I saw the place, I traveled very widely, I met some very interesting people and that place is captivating. I mean, it's a hugely beautiful place, quite spectacular. And because of my interest, I also started to immediately, you know, on, almost immediately start to look at some of the environmental issues. And uh, tribal issues, issues of uh, sand mining on the islands, forest deforestation, etc. So uh, I was very captivated by the place, and I wanted to go back. And then a, a couple of years later, I actually uh, started working with an organization called Kalpavriksh uh, that has been working for a long time in the field of environment. And through them, we put together a proposal for a research project, and then I kind of went back and kept going back. Uh, Partly because I really like the place. Partly I started to get involved in some of the issues. And uh, so there were multiple pulls in that sense. And that's how I continue to go back and continue to go back. As one of the states with the highest percentage of land as forests, what have been the unique ecological features of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands as per your experience? And what makes them unique in the Indian landscape? 
Yeah, so uh, the islands are unique in multiple ways. Uh, they're located far away from India. We don't have such a large island chain, uh, you know, almost 8,000 square kilometers, 600 big and small islands, located in the tropical belt, uh, fantastic tropical forests. And like you mentioned, uh, large areas are still under forest cover. They've not been cut down. There is uh, there's a fantastic coastline, different kinds of features on the coastline. You have sandy beaches, you have rocky beaches, you have mangroves, which are a, a very interesting uh, forest type. And then, of course, you have the very rich ocean. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's really a, uh, how should I put it? It's an amazing collection of ecological diversity and richness. So, like you find in most island systems and in this one also, you have very rich terrestrial ecosystem. So, the kinds of plants and animals and butterflies and birds and reptiles are very, very unique. There's so many of them which are not found anywhere else on planet Earth. You have a coastline. If I was to take just one example of sea turtles, four species of sea turtles come to nest on the beaches of these islands including the giant leatherback, which is the largest of sea turtles. And uh, the seas are extremely rich, extremely unexplored in the sense that we know very little. There's a lot of contemporary research that tells us about uh, what, what we are finding there. But uh, clean waters uh, and unexplored waters, so coral reefs, marine mammals, uh, like grass, uh, seagrass systems. So... Actually, it's absolutely every dimension of that is uh, is fascinating uh, and very unexplored. Even the terrestrial systems are not fully explored. And in many cases, a detailed research survey or a project ends up discovering a new species or two new species or something of that kind. So at multiple levels, is very fascinating. And then, of course, there is a dimension of the local people there. Uh, there are the indigenous communities that have been there for thousands of years and who have lived in close association and even balance with the local environment. And over the last 150 years, a number of human communities uh, from mainland India, first when the British came and then after independence, have also made the islands their home. So you also have this other diversity of human communities there, uh, which is not explored again as much as we possibly can. And in more recent years, there has been work that's being done on understanding these communities in addition to, of course, the uh, indigenous communities uh, that have been at the focus of attention for a very long time. So in multiple ways, uh, it's a very fascinating place. There's no doubt about that. Sir, it indeed does sound very fascinating. So speaking of the local community, how has the history of colonization in the Andaman Islands impacted the tribes, particularly in terms of their interaction with outsiders? See, I think in, if one was to sum it up, I think it's been an unfair uh, transaction or an unfair exchange between the indigenous communities and the outside world. So broadly, the islands have six tribal communities, four in the Andaman group and two in the Nicobar group. And five of these, four in the Andamans and one in the Nicobar, are what are known as the particularly vulnerable tribal groups. And as the name suggests, uh, they are very vulnerable communities. They are uh, small numbers, they are hunting nomadic uh, gathering uh, gathering communities that roam around the forest. So, uh, and they have lived their lives, uh, like I mentioned earlier, in reasonable harmony and uh, and balance because of various reasons, small numbers and and stuff like that. 
but over the last 150 years starting or 200 years starting with the british one sees that they have become increasingly marginalized so uh lands and forests that were exclusively theirs have been taken away for development projects for settlers from the outside who have come and started living in these islands their access to resources has has dwindled uh they have they've been impacted in terms of health so numbers are also falling down resources are kind of coming under pressure and it seems to be a a sad story on the one hand and something that one cannot really be positive about going ahead and uh, there is actually a, a great need and and a great purpose to be served by understanding these people uh, their knowledge and stuff like that but uh, we don't seem to be recognizing their importance and and their right to be there in the in the way that it actually should be so it is a unfair situation that is said that is certainly there in the islands that's what i would say if i may ask what is the longest period you have stayed on these islands and can you please share some unique experience you had so one uh, one time that i stayed the most uh, just a long over was 6 months at a time and uh, of course there are many experiences of being in any place for so long you go there will be something two or three that stand out and one actually i also converted into a little book that i we published recently called waiting for turtles which is a story of uh, the, the book is about the story of a little boy and his researcher mother and he's trying to go and see a nesting uh, sea turtle but uh, it is based on an incident where we came across a turtle on uh, on a particular island that we were there for some research and we were sleeping on the beach we had put these blue tarpaulin plastic sheets and in the middle of the night uh, you know i felt and my colleagues who were sleeping we felt a tug somebody's pulling the tarpaulin first i thought it you know it's maybe the wind or something because the wind is very blows very hard there and when we got up and i got up and we saw that there's a turtle on that tarpaulin sheet she was kind of stuck there because her flippers were slipping on that smooth surface of the plastic sheet and it was like quite something that we got up we pulled the sheet from under the turtle and then she went across to the end of the beach and and laid her eggs so that was one thing that always remained and i've also captured that in different ways uh in the novel that i wrote you mentioned in the beginning and also in this book for children uh, waiting for turtles i remember another incident where uh, there was a nesting turtle a uh, nesting uh, andaman uh, eagle the andaman eagle and it was nesting on the top of a mangrove tree and i actually retrospectively very foolishly i thought i'll try and get as close and i had this camera and wanted to take some pictures so i climbed up to a tree not very far away from the nesting tree uh it's called the andaman serpent eagle i'm sorry I, i was forgetting the name and so there's the nest on the other side maybe 15 20 feet from where i am i'm sitting on the top of this mangrove tree myself about 25 feet trying to take these pictures and the nest was empty uh, in the sense that there were chicks but there were no adult birds and then suddenly from the corner of my eye I see like an arrow moving towards me and one could see that whizzing sound and before I knew it and just in time I ducked and there was this adult serpent eagle that had just come for me so if I was a little above the canopy the tree the 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 leaves or if I not ducked in uh, uh you know my scalp would have been taken away 
imagine that that bird with those claws and that beak and coming at a speed of i don't know what of course it was feeling threatened because i was too close to its nest so i quickly scampered down and i said no more picture taking so that was there and then there was this other incident uh, which i wrote about and it was the first time where this jarawa community this is 1997 or 98 and i also wrote uh, my first big journalism article based on that for the frontline magazine when uh, they all a large number of these people for the first time ever came out from the forest on their own and came to human settlements on the jetty over there and we just happened to be there me and another uh, fellow researcher and it was the most incredible kind of encounter because there were these people who were feared to be hostile there was a very interesting complex history behind them but tens of them for a, and it's very large numbers for a small population were out there and we happened to be there and i had my camera and i taken some pictures and i wrote about it and eventually i learned that it was the first event of that kind that had happened in the in the history of that community so it was a big watershed in the history of that community that for the first time that they had come out and of course things changed very rapidly after that and uh, some of that again i've been writing about and we know in terms of uh, they have become a lot more integrated you asked that question earlier or as well they're in, they're they encountering the outside world a lot more but that seems to have been a watershed moment when things changed and uh, we happened to be there and we happened to record it and and write about it so that is quite an enduring memory and i i write about that event fictionalized in great detail in the novel uh some of it is fictionalized some of it is a reference to that particular event on the b uh, on the jt at we took a boat with them and all, and all that happened thank you for sharing that sir in 2004 one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded in asia triggered a massive tsunami which claimed the lives of over 2 lakh people in 14 countries the andaman and nicobar islands appear to have shifted southwest by around 4 feet and to have sunk by 3 feet what are the experiences that you recall and what is the impact that you can see today of those events so actually the impact was much larger than what you just said it was not 3 feet uh, in parts of the nicobar uh, parts of some of the islands or coastlines of these islands saw permanent subsidence of 15 feet not 3 feet and in other parts of the island chain like in the northern part in the andamans they also saw an uplift of 4 feet now like you rightly pointed out this is a phenomenal shift for any landscape and the changes are obviously going to be there uh, and we have to keep in mind that these are natural changes this this island system is located in a tectonically very active zone earthquakes are a regular happening in this landscape uh, this place has a active volcano tsunamis have happened in the past of course this was one of the biggest tsunamis but the impact that happened was a combination of the change of the landmass like you pointed out and like i said subsidence and uplift and also the waves coming so obviously when uh, the landmass is subsiding or uplifting it's going to change and we see the features of the landscape changing there was a lot of damage also to human populations and there was loss of life but like uh this old friend uh, the late dr ravi sankaran uh, who used to study birds in that island system said at that point he was there and he went and studied the ecosystem there after the earthquake and the tsunami he said you know the best intervention would be no intervention at all because this is a natural process this is a natural phenomenon and we have to keep in mind that these things keep happening and they have happened and they will happen 
But what I think is our larger concern to me, and I've been talking about this uh, in other places and writing about it, is that now that large amount and huge, you know, mammoth infrastructure and other projects are being proposed for these islands, it seems that we have forgotten what happened just 20 years ago. So if you're talking of a, of a coastline, that's all like we discussed 15 feet of subsidence and 4 feet of uplift. And you're going to go ahead and invest thousands of crores of rupees in creating infrastructure. Have we factored in enough the risks that are there in this place on account of the way that the place actually is? Earthquakes, like I said, tsunamis are common to this place. And my bigger concern, of course, is what happened in terms of the damage that happened at that point of time. And yes, uh, people lost their lives, property was lost, but it is a natural phenomenon in that place. Now, with the knowledge of such large earthquakes, of knowledge of such a big tsunami, if we continued on a development path that actually increases vulnerability and increases the possibility of damage, then I think we are creating extra trouble for ourselves. So, what will happen if an earthquake or tsunami comes, it happens anyway. But if you're going to put in a port or going to put in a habitation or a settlement along that coastline, we are increasing the vulnerability and the risk to these people, to that infrastructure and to that investment. And it strikes me as very strange that with all the knowledge available or the understanding available, if you look at the project documents uh, that have been proposed in recent years, it seems that that dimension is completely absent uh, in the discourse and in the understanding of the people who are proposing these things. So what has happened has happened. And my bigger concern is that what we're doing now, we make things worse in the future because uh, natural phenomena will continue to happen. You cannot prevent an earthquake or a tsunami from happening. And that is my bigger concern. Very truly spoken. Um, so given the impact of climate change, what are the impacts that you have seen on these islands and like how have the tribes in particular adapted to their their tra traditional ways of living in response to such environmental changes? So I must say it is difficult in a short span to to make a direct connection and to say that this is happening because of climate change. Uh, you know, climate change is a slow process. We can't deny it's happening. But to say that this is happening because of climate change is difficult. It's certainly difficult at the islands. And I don't know if we can make such direct conclusions yet. But as part of a larger network of things of, like I said, uh, development projects coming, an earthquake happening, population pressures increasing, uh, then one sees that there are challenges. And again, where the indigenous communities are concerned, uh, I do not have so much first-hand knowledge because I have not really worked with them. But there are the larger challenges, for instance, of uh, look, drinking water for the human population there. So, Port Blair Town, which is the administrative capital and has, has, has a population of about a lakh and a, and a lakh and a half, every summer they have no drinking water. They get water in their taps in Port Blair once in three days. Now, in an area which has such a large amount of rainfall, if you're not able to tap that rainfall for human consumption, one. Two is in this situation, if you're going to promote a tourism industry. So how, what are we thinking when you're promoting all of this? And I'm not saying let's not promote tourism, but are we aware of the fact that this is the resource, con resource constraint and the resource crunch? And what I, I think can say is that these are going to become difficult with climate change, for instance. 
we are seeing now as we speak that this year we are almost through with January and the Himalayas have not seen snow. So that's clearly something happening out there. So to say that this is happening in the islands because of climate change, I would not be able to make any claim. But set in the larger context of what we are doing, uh, there are concerns that are certainly there. And if you're not careful, they're only going to come together, compound and make things much, much more difficult with basic things like rainfall, drinking water, leave alone a disaster if that happens, for instance. So that is something we have to be concerned. As we come towards a conclusion, what according to you are the future prospects for the ecology and the aboriginal tribes of the Andaman Islands in the face of modernization and environmental challenges? I think this is a question for all of us. It's not just for the aboriginal tribes. Uh, cultural change is happening rapidly across the globe at different levels. The kind of exposure that you know my generation had as compared to the generation after me and after that are, are different and and compounded with the challenges of environmental change, uh, rising global temperatures, etc. It is not necessarily I'm beginning to feel a disadvantage and we have to figure out ways of dealing with that whole thing. And to say that this is the solution, I think also would not be appropriate because I don't know. This as things change, as things are, are happening, because many things are happening that we have no clue about. And we will have to... I think one what I might say, what I've learned from broadly the field of philosophy of science and technology and what other people have been saying, a certain humility in the way we approach nature systems. If you look at what is being say proposed in the islands or what's happening in the Himalayas, the kind of interventions that we are making in terms of uh, and the damages we are causing, uh, I think one thing we can do is to stop causing that damage because change is going to, so much change is going to happen anyway. Why are we making things difficult for ourselves? the way the mountain sizes are falling off in the Himalayas, the kind of floods that are happening in Kerala. So, the challenges are going to be there. And uh, being aware of what is there and, and following the precautionary principle. Uh, but beyond that, I'm not able to say much because I don't know what the future is going to be like. But if we are more aligned, aware, sensitive, to nature's patterns, to what nature has, and some humility in terms of that we are only part of the system, then I think we'll all together be able to deal with the challenges that are going to be thrown up because there's no denying the fact that challenges that are going to come up are nothing of the kind that we have seen before because of the world that we live in, the scale at which things are happening, the global collectedness, the globalization that's happened, uh, the, the, the scale of change of the climate, so, global warming. So, I think a, a deep rootedness and understanding is absolutely necessary. We might then be able to deal slightly better than what we are doing now. So, that part doesn't perhaps answer the question, but that's the best I can do. I think we are through with the questions now. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights, sir. It was an enlightening conversation. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope today's discussion has inspired and informed you. Remember, every step towards understanding our environment is a step towards a better future. Stay curious, stay connected and join us again as we continue to explore and appreciate our incredible planet. Until next time, take care and keep making a difference.